Hello, and welcome to the Violin Geek Podcast. I'm your host, Laurel Thompson, and today I'm excited to bring you this interview I recorded a few months ago with historical bow maker Ralph Ashmead. Ralph lives up in the mountains of California, and he's been making historical bows for a few decades now. It was really fun to talk to him about the different woods he uses, the different styles of bows that existed before the modern bow came into creation. And particularly, it was nice to chat with him because I was able to purchase one of his Baroque bows a number of years back and immediately found that it informed my playing of Baroque music in a completely new way. All of the lightness and lift that we're often looking for in these Baroque dance forms suddenly came to life on my instrument. And I realized, wow, as much as we all focused on the violin and the violinist, we really have to give a lot of credit to the bow, our tool for tone, because its weight and the material that it's made out of and how long it is and all these different factors that we're going to be talking about really do make a difference. And when I returned to my modern bow and tried to play the same material, it just felt really heavy and clunky, and I could see how it would be a struggle to really pull off the same sort of feel. And of course, at the same time, I wouldn't want my Baroque bow to take me into some crazy romantic concerto either, Tchaikovsky or whatever. We need the right tool for the right situation, and I hope you'll really enjoy exploring this world of historical bows, and maybe consider checking out Ralph's site and picking up one of your own. I'd highly recommend it. It's just a fascinating experience. But before we dive into the interview, I just want to mention thank you for listening, and thank you for sharing the podcast with those who you also think may enjoy it. This is a labor of love, and it is built by word of mouth. And so another way that you can help me spread the word is by rating and reviewing the podcast wherever you listen. It's easy to do. I think most platforms you can give up to a five-star rating. And if you just want to stop there, that's fine. If you want to write a little review, that's also very beneficial so that others can find the podcast and hopefully enjoy it too. So without further ado, let's dive into the interview with Ralph Ashmead. I've just really enjoyed this bow that I bought from you. I was looking back in the email thread from 2016. I didn't realize it had been quite as long. What got you into thinking about getting a Baroque bow? I think it was, I mean, obviously we're seeing a lot of players on YouTube starting to, maybe they're not necessarily playing on historical instruments, but they're playing historical bows. And it was probably Rachel Barton Pine was, was a big factor. There was a little YouTube or series that she had done. And she just said, you know, even if you only have a hundred bucks or something, like just go, go, go somewhere and just get, get one of these bows. I don't know if you can really get one for that cheap, maybe somewhere. I don't know if it's any good, but uh, she was just so encouraging. And so that, that was one part of it. And yeah, just over the years, sometimes people saying, oh, well, if you just hold it up more near the balance point, you can kind of get that feeling of what those bows might have felt like. And finally, after all these years, just thinking, you know, let's just get one <laughs> or at least let's see. So I was really happy to find you and to try some. I think we had a couple shipments that we did and and just, yeah, land on a bow that for whatever reason, seemed to really work with my playing and work with my instrument. 
That's good. That's the idea. Yeah, exactly. So some people listening may or may not know that there's anything other than the modern bow that came with, you know, their, their first instrument. So what are some of the differences between Baroque and then on your website, you're also talking about transitional bows and of course, then the modern bows. Well, it does help to have the visual, but, um, they're obviously much shorter, and the curve is less, and Tensi is a slightly denser wood, and uh, less hair, less width of hair, and um, I think that, you know, the length is probably the big shocker if you're used to modern bows, because they are definitely shorter, and the tip's much lighter. It's very tapered. It has less of this, almost like a hatchet head. I don't know if there's a technical term for that, but the modern bow... It has some bulk to it. Yeah, mine is very tapered. I don't know if they're all like that. There's no real standardization of early bows, but in general, they were all considerably shorter and lighter and easier to handle. And And that's actually one of the things that makes them interesting to make is that they weren't standardized. And every time you see a new original from some museum or something, they're a little different. You know, they're all kind of unique and uh, interesting and some are, uh, some are not that attractive, but then some are gorgeous and everything in between. So imagine you get to be kind of creative with it, too. And, I mean, sometimes just kind of make it from scratch, or do you have standard designs that you're always following? or um, Both. I have a lot of drawings of things, but um, I can play around with those things somewhat. And it's kind of that's kind of what makes it interesting and a little bit on the uh, creative side. I mean, modern bows are very stick, much standardized. You really, do, you really can't deviate too much in length or curve or weight or balance. Um, they're very finely made, and it takes a lot of skill to make a modern bow. But I, I kind of got drawn to the options available with early bows. There's a lot more variety of woods and models and, and curves, and a lot of it's just a give and take. When I take it to people and kind of get feedback. I change little things until, until it starts working for people. And and then I make a drawing of that. And then I still end up making changes to that over the years because people, people change their own styles over the years, I've noticed. I've had players that I've known for 40 years. And so there's a few of them that are still playing on the same bow, but a lot of them, you know, they're always kind of on the lookout for something new and different. And sometimes they change instruments or they change teachers or strings or whatever it is, and the bow that they started with isn't what they're needing now, and so they, you know, they're always out looking for something new and something to bring a different tone out or a different, you know, they're playing another piece of music that they never played before. Maybe it's drawing out a different challenge that, you know, a new bow brings out that the old bows, they were having trouble handling or something. And so there's always kind of a little bit of give and take and change, and it makes it interesting. Yeah, we have to appreciate it as an evolving art. And I remember being a kid and just thinking that that first violin and that first bow that I had was going to be with me forever. It's like, this is the greatest instrument, the greatest bow I could ever have. And then, of course, getting to the point where I had outgrown it and feeling that day when it's like I had to have that conversation with my instrument. It's not you, it's me. (laughs) Yeah. I need to move on. I'm so sorry. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And how cool as a bow maker, you can kind of see that process in your clients and evolve your bows along with them. 
Yeah, it's, it's a little challenging because I never quite know until it happens, you know. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's why I make a huge variety because I just never, I really never know. There's a few people I've dealt with long enough that I kind of, once in a while, I say, oh, I bet I know, I bet I know who would like this kind of bow or this, this new model or this new wood or something. But for the most part, I don't even know my customers. I just, you know, deal with them on email and ship the bows out so I don't get to hear them and that's a little more challenging. I have to just kind of try to narrow down what they're looking for and send them a variety and hopefully we find something. So you mentioned with the Baroque bows, this different curvature. Is the curvature of the modern bow, like it's always like the camber that curves in towards the hair with bows prior to that, was it always either kind of more of a straight stick or curving the opposite way. I think that's one of the most visually striking things too, because, you know, as violinists, we're always told, don't tighten that that stick too much. And then we see this Baroque bow in our hands suddenly and we go, what? I'm supposed to tighten it so it bows the other way? <laughs> so, yeah, when did they decide to, to change that curvature? That's a good question. You know, and that's one of the hardest things to really know for sure because even when you measure an old bow that the curve is the least trustworthy aspect of it because they move over time they can be changed by anybody anytime you get it rehaired they could tweak the camber of it so you don't really 100 percent know if even the camber on an original bow is original you know so mm, oh, interesting some of it is a surmise but but you know the really early baroque renaissance they were curved more out, outwards, like even before they're tightened. I have just a few bows that I do that with, but most of my uh, Baroque bows have a little in- inward camber, and you're right. I, I make them so that when you tighten them, they've got a gentle outward curve, but they still have a little bit of inward camber. To um, start with, when they're, when they're relaxed. When they're relaxed. But I make them to be tightened up enough so that they do have an outward camber. Now it starts getting into transitional. Um, those have more inward camber, and they're more slightly inward cambered or slight, close to straight when they're tight, but not normally out. Right, and so the transitional bows, that was sort of a shorter time period when they were, I assume, starting to have material that needed that sort of more sustained sound? And was this uh, Torts design that was starting to influence bow makers or even prior to him? And yeah, maybe tell us a little bit about what you know about how that design changed. Well, none of these things happen overnight. And so there's overlap of, I'm sure there was people using Baroque bows a lot longer and there was people using transitional classical bows up into the mid-1800s, there's lithographs of people using bows that are obviously not what you would now consider a modern bow. But it was the demands of the musician, you know, playing in, playing in larger spaces and needing more volume. And, you know, the orchestras were getting bigger. They were, in the Baroque era, you know, they're playing in people's homes. Well, you know, I say homes by castles or, mm-hmm. you know, palace <laughs> stuff. But they weren't playing, you know, Carnegie Hall-sized areas. Often they were playing in churches where the organ was. So that's a fairly small space. So the, they didn't need the huge volume. And, you know, composers were 
writing stuff for bigger groups and bigger spaces. And so the demand on the instruments changed and the bows changed and and it didn't happen overnight. So the transitional, I call them kind of transitional bows. Some people call them classical bows. Talking 1750 to 1820-ish. You can see all sorts of experiments. You can tell them they were trying to figure out what to do in this period. And But, you know, some of them work quite well and they're kind of pre-modern, but on the on the road to being modern, some of them, some of the heads look pretty similar to a modernish bow, but they still had less curve, a little less hair, and the balance was still a little bit more towards the tip. They weren't holding them right at the frog yet, I don't think, because you look at a lot of those bows from that period, and there's quite a lot of frilly, curvy uh, frogs that wouldn't be comfortable to put your thumb on. That's when they started wrapping the bows. Also, partially that's probably because they're trying to get a little bit lighter in the wood, and that wood can kind of wear down from your hand, and also just to give you a little bit of a grip. Yeah. So do you think that's where that grip came from? Because I think a lot of us have questioned, like, why is it so high up when, like, maybe our index finger, maybe our middle finger sits on the grip, but then, of course, part of our hand doesn't even sit on the grip anymore with a with a modern bow and a modern bow hold, but maybe... Yeah, that's where they were holding the bow in general. Yeah, I think I think the holding the bow or farther down was a later a later thing um, because you can see some of those frogs. They would not be if you tried to put your thumb on there. You'd, you know, it's not well. So, uh, but they did wrap them, and I think they held them. They still held them a little bit further up. I'm not even sure exactly when the thumb leather came in. That was that was a probably again. With the modern bow, probably more like 1810, 1820s or something like that. Um, so, so pretty much that transitional period, it sounds like, is is the classical era, essentially, or later classical into rom- uh, romantic era. So that makes perfect sense because, yeah, of course, if we look at the repertoire, like you're saying, we're starting to get a lot bigger groups, orchestras, and concertos, and, and needing to have that volume and that sustain, fill the space, and uh, a lot less on the dance forms, and a lot more on the, yeah, the big soloistic sound, right? Yeah, and the instruments were changing, you know, they started getting a little strong, longer string length and slightly higher bridges, and, you know, again, none of this stuff just, like, happened in a day. It was kind of, it kind of morphed, and you know, if you see a real genuine Baroque violin versus a classical violin, it, there's a distinctive difference, and mm-hmm. and with the bow. And I think, you know, the gut string thing lasted quite a lot longer because I don't think they made, you know, metal E strings and stuff until quite a bit later. Yeah, I'm not exactly sure, but yeah, I, I imagine <laughs> probably. probably. No, and even the pitch, you know, it was at 415 or, you know, that varied too a lot of it was based on what instruments they were playing around like they would tune to the the organ in the church or whatever but a lot of it was you know the pitch was 415 more than now it's 440 or or plus yeah and so you know all that kind of stuff kind of all sort of came together it wasn't just the bow or just the instrument or just the pitch it was all sort of all sort of growing together so now we think about modern bows and we always think of Pernambuco. Was Pernambuco even kind of a part of things back then? Or was it, you said earlier, it's traditionally or non-traditionally, <laughs> there isn't a tradition. Um, it's a mix of different woods and materials. And 
And so I guess what are what what was sort of standard or um, and then what were are you using now typically to make these bows? Well, Pernambuco was kind of an oddball because it was really uh, heavily lumbered, but it was mostly used for dye wood because if you chop it up or get sawdust or chips and soak it in water, it makes an incredible purple dye. And so oh, wow. it was kind of it was kind of the royal color, and so it was mostly cut down for that. And I don't think it was particularly thought of for for bows or lumber until later, but it was there, so it was. It's definitely possible you could find a Pernambuco bow that was, you know, from the Broke era. And I, in fact, there's one model that I do use Pernambuco on. But generally, they used um, the snakewood and ironwoods that are a little heavier and a little denser, not necessarily stiffer, because uh, that's kind of a different, slightly different thing. But um, yeah, so I'm always on the lookout for other woods. And I'm, there's a lot of early bows that nobody knows what the wood is. You know, it's like it's really hard to sometimes know what an early bow is actually made out of uh, because woods darken and age over time. It gets very hard to distinguish what it's, what it's made out of, but it's pretty obvious that the, most of the wood was very dense and uh, you can kind of get away with it more with Baroque bows because the tips are smaller and they're, they did a process called fluting, which I don't know if you tried any bows that were fluted, but that's what they call the, they put these long grooves down the stick, and it it reduces a lot of the weight down towards the tip. And it kind of works well with the, the heavier snakewoods and ironwoods because it keeps some of the stiffness but gets rid of some of the weight. And, mm-hmm. of course, modern bows are not fluted. Uh, classical bows generally are not fluted. I think maybe I've seen one that was kind of an oddball. So that that's a process that kind of died out with the uh, end of the Baroque era. Are these very like shallow grooves, or because the one that I did end up purchasing, it does have it's more like within the grip area. It has like what you're saying, like these little grooves. But then I'm trying to remember. Yeah, that's, that's actually a different thing. We call it, okay. we call that reading, R E D E D. That's more just for the uh, the grip factor. Okay. But there are bigger grooves um, that a lot of the bows had that are kind of the upper two thirds of the bow. Um, and not many makers do that these days. It's not an easy thing to do. It is effective, and it does get rid of some of the weight. But Baropos, you know, they they don't have the same power from one end to the other, and that's kind of the good and the bad. I mean, they for that kind of music, it works perfectly because you kind of want the diminishing, I guess is the right word, from one end to the other, which kind of automatically the bow just does on its own. Like a tapering um, in the sound and the volume. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so, because it's not the same from one end to the other. Um, so you kind of get that automatically using a broke bow. But, you know, you don't get the massive full-length power of a modern bow on a broke bow. So they, they do different things, basically. And why might someone choose a historic bow? I mean, I mentioned my experience, but I imagine some people listening might think, well... The bow's evolving over time, and now the modern bow can play all this modern, more modern music anyway. We're still talking about music that could be 200 years old or whatever, but, you know, more modern music, so shouldn't I just, like, it's better. We'll just keep, you know, keep rolling along here, and now we've got these bows. Why might someone go back to playing 
a historic bow or mostly what what are your clients looking for when they when they source you out um well it's a good question and i think in maybe from the mid 1800s until maybe the 1960s um i think most people felt that way it's just like oh that's old and it's not any good anymore and you got this modern bow and it does what i need to do and then i think around the 60s and 70s when no pun intended, there was kind of a renaissance into people wanting to play early music. Um, they kind of started going back to it and realizing, well, you know, it's not a it's not a right or wrong or a better or worse, but it's different, and it's very... Uh, you do get a different sound, and I can do some of these string processing things easier with a lighter tip and a, a kind of a quicker bow, and so... Then, then it kind of went the other way. Now, now people are, you know, pretty determined that uh, you know if I'm going to play authentic pro music, I better get a, better get the right bow. And and it does, as you found out yourself, it does make a big difference. So it's not a better or worse or right or wrong. It's just, it's different. It's unique. And a lot of people have, you know, audiences have found they like the sound of broke music played on gut strings and a smaller orchestra and a different bow and it's definitely a different sound it is a different sound yeah and when i was growing up youtube didn't exist quite yet and so oh, I, I had recordings of you know like elizabeth wallfish and rachel podger and some of these people that pretty early on i think in that process you're talking about decided that they wanted to go full-on traditional and play on these traditional instruments and i assume traditional bows and yeah there was always just this kind of ringing resonant sound and then just like the ease of playing I'm thinking of you know Bach partitas and sonatas of course and stuff like this Corelli and it definitely like I couldn't necessarily put my finger on it at the time but it had a different just tone tonal quality just mood and feeling about it and then I really enjoyed some early CDs that I had of people playing more modern bows as well but now through this process with this bow it's hard for me to go back and and listen to some of those especially Bach recordings with the modern bows because it just seems so kind of labored and (laughs) you know intense there's like an intensity to it which now I mean it's it's all personal taste but now it's I'm not favoring that as much you know but just for such a long time I held those CDs up and said, wow, this is what I want to aspire to. It's just, yeah, I think maybe when people explore it, it may or may not be for them, but I think it's definitely worth a try because it's just such an educational process. Not that I had to completely change my technique in order to play with this bow, but different things, you know, modifying different things and then going back to the the modern bow finding that you know just like that lightness and that that quickness you're talking about I was you know just how much harder I have to work and not that I can't not that I can't get the same sound with the modern bow but it's a lot it's a lot different it's a lot more difficult in some respects I heard someone say and I I wish I could remember who it was and they said you know the Baroque bow forces you to play differently Mm -hmm. your technique it forces you to change your technique, and it's, and it's more the right technique for that kind of music, because you just can't do what you want on the violin 
a Baroque violin with a modern bow the way you can with a, a Baroque bow, and it, it kind of forces you to play it a little differently, and then that's usually a bit of an improvement in terms of that kind of sound. Yeah, not that we have to be historically correct, but if we want to you know, move people with the music and maybe transport them to that time period or just a different time period than we are in or a different space than we're in, it's like using those tools, you know, having those tools at our disposal where it's like we get to have that ease, have that ease in creating that different sound or, or just setting that, that space, setting that mood. And a lot of the Irish, you know, the Irish folk music and stuff, a lot of that stuff was written back then, and those are the kind of bows they used back then, too. So it, it works quite well for that kind of genre also. Yes, actually, I have found that with a little bit of fiddling and, yeah, particularly the Celtic music. And I think similarly, like, like you're saying, the tapered kind of diminuendo sort of bow strokes and, and also with that sort of music. Yeah, I definitely find with both the Baroque music and, and fiddle tunes, like we kind of have to be in the right spot in the bow at the right time. And so if we get our bowing sort of sorted out, these bows definitely seem to just help us create that phrasing and uh, tapering, like we're saying. Just, yeah, just so much easier. And they're faster, generally. Yes. I felt Easier like, wow, really my old fast, bows, yeah. <laughs> Definitely faster. Yeah, I felt like my old bow, once I went back to it, it's like, wow, this is like the Clydesdale. It's like plowing the fields. <laughs> yeah, a little this, bit. Yeah. And then I've got this racehorse bow now. Yeah, very cool. Um, so what inspired you to focus on making historical bows? Uh, making historical instruments. <laughs> ah, okay. Uh, I was a woodworker first, and then studied classical guitar, but then I was just always drawn to early instruments because I just would see, you know, catalogs of museum instruments, and I just thought they were just so cool, looking at old lutes and viola de gambas and viola de, de mores and all that kind of stuff. I just thought the craftsmanship and the creativity and the uniqueness, and so I, I did some studying making stuff like that, and uh, I couldn't find bows for them. And uh, I took a few lessons on gamba and couldn't find a bow to play myself. And the teacher encouraged me to copy her bow, and I did. And she said, oh, that's, you know, for a first try, that's that's not bad. And I kept working at it, and she ended up selling some to her students. And I just saw a need, and I, at first it was just a sideline, but um, they sold really well because they were really hard to find back then. And... Uh, Philharmonia Baroque was just kind of starting up and, you know, they all needed bows and they were kind of my scapegoats to begin with, kind of bringing stuff to rehearsals and they would give me feedback and let me know what was working and what wasn't working. And so I was in a good spot at a good time to do it. And then eventually I just kind of didn't totally stop making instruments, but pretty much the bows just took over at a certain point and I just stuck with it. You know, with the instruments, it's a lot harder to experiment and fool around with stuff because the time involved is just incredible. And with a bow, you can kind of, you know, okay, if it's something doesn't work, there may always be someone that ends up liking that, or it's not a huge investment of time and materials. So there's a, a little bit more freedom to explore and try different woods and different models, and I don't know, I kind of match my personality in the end, I guess. That's awesome. Yeah. So what's the general process like for making a bow? Do you find some wood that you like and then from there 
Can you get an inspiration for it? or? I try to keep quite a stock of models at all times. And, you know, if I have a run on something and then I run low on a couple of models of Baroque violin bow or something, then I'll feel a need that I should make some of those. And then I'll go paw through my wood and find what I think will work well for that model. And then sometimes I just come across a piece of wood and I go, oh, I've I got to do something special with this. And then I, I think the other way, well, what would, what would this wood work really well for? And I'll just either make something up or experiment or look for a different model or whatever. So sometimes it goes the other way. But um, more often than not, it's just I need, you know, I've had a run on Baroque viola or whatever, so I need to make some more Baroque viola bows. And I have drawings and measurements of different things and sometimes depends upon if I'm going to go to a trade show or an early music festival or if I'm going to visit an orchestra kind of thinking okay well what what would they be looking for and start to finish about how long does it generally take to make a bow well to be honest that's my least favorite question <laughs> <laughs> sorry no you, but it's like it varies every time and the problem is it doesn't take into account having learned how to do it pawing through the wood cutting the wood from big forms to little boards and drying it for years and you know the paper you know there's paperwork and there's blah 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 blah. so it's like it's really hard I mean yeah I can give somewhat of a ballpark answer but it really doesn't describe the real whole process of not only making the bow but then getting it to the right person and you know sometimes they have to try you know two or three different shipments of bows and blah 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 so it takes you know, sometimes I can make a bow and it sits here for 10 years until all of a sudden the right person, oh, this is the greatest bow. And it's like, it's been here forever and no one's, no one's even tried it, you know. So it's a different answer between what's the whole process and ver- versus making the bow. And then some of the little dance bows that I mentioned that do actually curve out, some of those are pretty quick and make, I can make one in a three day, a couple, two, three days. And then some of the real fancy broke ones take a couple weeks. So I guess that gives you a ballpark, but um, most of them are in between that somewhere. Yeah, well, and like just musicians in general, just getting hired for an event or something. Oh, we're going to go play for one hour. And then, oh, and this is what we charge. <laughs> and then, yeah, exactly. you know, hopefully people value that enough, you know, but then you think about, oh, and just that one hour, how much time went into that? Oh, that was, you know, 25, 30 years of practice and this much experience performing already and uh, all this money was spent on this gear <laughs> driving there I, I still play guitar i play in a little jazz band and people say oh you charge that much for an hour but you know it's like well you got to get the set list together you got to work it up and practice with yeah. each other and then you have to haul your stuff and then you have to load in and then you have to set up and then you have to tune and then then they want you to sit there while they do announcements for two hours and then play another hour and then then you got to put your stuff back in the car, and then you got to drive home and then unload. And, you know, it's like five <laughs> or six hours, so it's not a, it's not an hour, as you say. You know. Yeah, and all the emails back and forth to plan out the event and stuff. Yeah. And then it doesn't account for the the ones that didn't the bows that didn't make it. They either broke or sure. You got the last stage, and you find a crack in the wood, or you know that kind of stuff happens all the time. And you're bending it, and it just explodes, or you know, a model that you think is going to work and nobody likes it. And so then, you know. Oh, that's got to be so depressing. <laughs> You're like almost finished or something. Or maybe it doesn't happen quite then when the bow explodes. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it's usually right at the last second. Oh, no. Like when you're putting the hair on at that point? Or... Oh, I've had it happen when I was, I had one bow, one bow just 
broke when I was rosining it up. It was all done, and it just, you know, there was something in the wood there that wasn't obvious, and it just, it just broke. Oh, my goodness. Like, oh, no. <laughs> uh, There's no one, no one else to blame, you know. Yeah, all well, those little things. kind of dirty look. He doesn't understand. <laughs> Fortunately, it, it, it happens on my watch usually because I'm pretty brutal with them. If they survive me, they, they usually survive the customer. Yeah, so are you having to, like, how does this wood start? Is it, like, just sort of like a long dowel? It's a chunk of wood, and then you're carving it down into a round? Well, it comes in all sorts of forms, but normally in the years past, uh, most most of the wood I've got I bought many years ago, and it was either a small log or a quartered log, and then I'd have to cut it up into little boards at much... Uh, sweaty labor because this stuff was really heavy and it's really hard to cut and logs are the worst to deal with because they're round and you're trying to cut them in half on a bandsaw and it's a lot of work and it's very difficult um so i cut them on the little boards and then uh that has to go down in my little i call it the wine cellar downstairs where it's a lot cooler and cure it for several years before you can really work on it and the problem with uh, a lot of these really hard woods is they don't cure very well because they're so dense that I think it's hard for the moisture in the wood to get out. So they tend to crack, and sometimes it's very, very fine little cracks that are almost invisible. And the harder the wood, the more likely it is to crack. So so is it like because they're so hard, the outer parts of the wood, it's already dried maybe, and then there's like kind of this middle or inner part that still has that moisture, so then it like cracks along that line or something? Not exactly, but you're kind of on the right path. I mean, it's, you know, woods are, when they're alive, trees are transporting water and stuff up and down all the time, so they're full of fluids and water and the lighter the wood the easier the water has to get out and it's pretty easy to cure them and they don't usually cause a problem but you get these super hard woods and the moisture just has trouble get even though they're cut into very small boards which does help quite a bit but um yeah they have trouble getting the moisture out and if you dry them too quick or if it's too hot they'll just almost explode in fact we used to live on the coast up near point Reyes many years ago and we moved up here which is way drier and I actually was unloading my wood into my new workshop and I heard this pow sound <laughs> like an explosion sound like what was that and I looked over and there was just one of my one of my little boards and it just literally just exploded in big cracks just all at once it just popped because oh, it couldn't wow. handle the, the humidity change um, so yeah that's kind of the bane of making is it's really hard to get good wood and you have to go through a lot of wood to get a few good pieces and even those few pieces can have little cracks in them that you don't see until the end and it's kind of a constant thing you're battling so besides having the wood in the cellar is there anything else you do to try and speed up the process of curing the wood well actually you're trying to slow it down slow it down <laughs> oh, so it doesn't crack well, <laughs> normally for wood you you're trying to speed that up and that's why they use most wood is kiln dried most bow wood is air dried and it takes a long time and if it's slower normally it's better for the wood in this case because it's less likely to crack so yeah it's more it's moisture and cooler down in the basement and then about two or three years before I'm ready to use it, 
I move it upstairs, which is way drier and hotter um, to get its kind of final curing, and then I make bows out of that. So I have a small stash upstairs, which is what I'm usually using, and every couple of years or something, I'll go down to the downstairs and drag some more up. So you have to be patient with this wood. <laughs> oh boy. Yeah. I've been to different luthiers and, you know, musical instrument building workshops and stuff like that. And um, not not ever a bow, bow maker's workshop, but these other folks, they're, you know, tapping the wood, they're listening to the wood, they're, they have these little methods that they use to sort of determine, like, is, is this the, the wood I want to use? Is this wood ready? Do you have little tricks and stuff like that that you use as well, or just over time you kind of have an intuition about it, or how do you tell if when wood's ready? It's uh, a good question. Um, there is actually a, it's called a Lukey meter, which was invited, that's the guy's name, I guess he's Italian or something, and um, it's kind of interesting, I didn't have this for years, but it, I bought it in maybe in the 90s or something, and it actually measures the speed of sound through the wood, and it does tell you the stiffness of the piece of wood but it's so it does give you a piece of information but it, it's not 100 percent like oh it's got a great number on this lukey meter that it's going to be a great bow but if you're making the same bow out of two different pieces of wood and one has a higher number that's going to be probably a stiffer piece of wood so you might be able to make it a little thinner which might make it better but there's other considerations weight and um like there's one wood, African blackwood that I use, and I only use it for one or two models, but some people just love it, and it doesn't rate high at all on the Lukey meter. It's not that stiff, but it's got this density to it, and it's kind of oily, and for some reason it brings out a really deep, dark sound out of the instrument that a lot of these other woods don't. So if you have an instrument that's kind of almost on the too bright uh, brash sound, this bow works great. For some reason, it sits on the string longer. Or some, I don't even know the mechanics of it exactly myself, but <laughs> it, it sits on the string a little longer because it's, um, it's not as stiff and it gets a little deeper sound. So that's, you know, that's one of those occasions where the Lukey meter doesn't really tell you a whole lot. But even with that wood, if it reads even lower than the normal for blackwood, like even with blackwood, I can use this meter and it will tell me a little something about what I can do with it. Um, other than that, yeah, a lot of it's not until I kind of get it cut down into a, a bow. I kind of rough it out on the bandsaw, and I can usually tell once I've cut it how it's going to react, but I still don't sometimes know until the very end. A lot of it's looking at the grain and seeing what it's uh -huh. doing. Uh, but sometimes you can have a board that looks just perfectly straight, and you take one little cut off of it, one little bow blank, and it just bends and twists like crazy. <laughs> and you're like, oh, no. And at that point, would you assume that... It just needs to sit longer, or would you just be like, no, okay, I, I think, think I just have to throw this away. This is just even going to work. Well, interesting. I mean, sometimes it does that, and I just sometimes make those make incredible bows because it's got this built-in tension to it, but mm -hmm. it's really hard to work with. You just have to really wrestle with it to try to get it to the form that you want because you really have to do a lot more work bending it, and you have to work with it when it's kind of curvy, and sometimes those are really stiff pieces of wood and you can actually make a really good bow out of it but it's a lot more work and sometimes they, the failure rate's a bit higher I would say but mm -hmm. if you can wrestle it into shape um, sometimes they are really good 
I love that image. I can just imagine you wrestling with wood. <laughs> wrestling, yeah, I do have to wrestle with it. Wrestling a bow out of this hunk of wood, yeah. <laughs> and then the player yeah, wrestles, use, wrestles it into use, music. Well, sometimes you have to use more heat because I have to use heat on all the bows to bend them. And some bows, like the like the African blackwood, bends. It's like bending rubber. Once it gets hot, it just goes, whoop, you know, like no problem. Although sometimes it's still hard to get it in the right shape, but it bends with not very much heat. And then some of these uh, warpy ones with a lot of tension and really stiff, boy, they can just take an incredible amount of heat. And because you're using more heat, it's easier to burn it or crack it from the heat. Or sometimes those are just, they're really stiff, but they're kind of brittle. And so you're trying to put that little extra at last curve in it. It just snaps in half. Oh, <laughs> it's like, yeah. ah, so that, yeah. that's the wrestling part. So you have to, check in probably a lot more with a, a situation like that and just be careful that you're not overdoing it. I mean, I can imagine it might be difficult because if it's a wood that requires that amount of heat, you just kind of maybe want to go at it, but then, yeah, you have to be careful at the same time. So that, I can imagine that would be a really kind of tough balance sometimes to strike. Yeah. Sometimes I come in from the shop and I said, man, I was just wrestling the wild anaconda all afternoon. <laughs> That blackwood there. Yeah, so as far as the like the frog and little other details you're putting on there and maybe the materials you're using for those, tell us a little bit about what those materials are and if those are like generally chosen just for decoration or you're also thinking in terms of like overall weight and balance with those materials and those designs. Uh, yes, yes, and yes. There's a little bit more leeway uh, with the materials you can use for frogs and buttons, but not a whole lot. And generally, it's kind of similar to the bow woods. In fact, a lot of the sticks are made out of the same, or the frogs are made out of the same wood as the stick, but not necessarily. There are a couple of other woods that you can use because there's some woods that are hard enough um, and dense enough to make a good frog, but they don't come in long enough pieces. They're just either bushes or smaller trees that really don't come in lumber-sized pieces long enough to make a bow, but you can make them for frogs and buttons. So there's that. So all the woods that you make a bow out of, you can pretty much use for the frogs. You can use the same piece if you've got a long enough piece, and it makes use of all these little chunks that you end up with when you're cutting stuff up. Um, then, of course, a lot of the broke bows, originally they were using ivory, I found mammoth ivory, which seemed like an awesome alternative, and it's all dug out of the ground up in either Alaska or Siberia, and looks, in, in my in my opinion, actually looks better than elephant ivory because it's got a little more color and it's not just pure white. A lot of it's tan or even some brown. Sometimes it has little streaks of blue in it where it's absorbed minerals from the soil. And then, you know, the last 10 years or so, there's been a lot of people freaking out because of customs and even with mammoth, because sometimes they're afraid people, you know, customs can't tell the difference. We're not even sure about that. So now I've, I have found a couple of alternate materials. One is uh, micarta, and it's actually layers of either canvas or linen or paper, and it's like a high high compression industrial phenolic material that's not that easy to find, but it is out there and actually works pretty well. And it comes in a variety of colors, and 
I don't know if I, I was, I've been meaning to put some of the pictures of that on my website, but um, you can get it in red, some reds and browns and golds, and it works fine. And it's it's dense enough, and it's you can carve it with hand tools, and it's kind of oblivious to heat and cold and that kind of thing. So that that works pretty well, because even no matter how hard the wood is, you can't really copy some of the frillier uh, Baroque and classical frogs out of wood. So it's got to be something something more on the ivoryish uh, hardness scale in order to carve those little details. Otherwise, that makes in wood it would chip off. And, you know, some of it, of course, is the balance and the weight, but you can somewhat intermix, you know, wood or ivory. You just have to change the design of the frog a bit. That makes sense. Yeah, the one that I chose was probably the least ornate of the bunch that I tried, but it just seemed to work the best for me. And it's interesting you're mentioning, like, this whole cities thing. I forget what that stands for, but the, the customs and back when I mean of course the elephant ivory it makes complete sense why that should not be crossing borders and should not be harvested anymore but it kind of was strange to me that then this mammoth ivory was was being allowed because I'm thinking well that's like almost like a fossil right what I heard was that I guess they caught somebody treating elephant ivory to make it look like mammoth ivory and so and then customs I mean Theoretically, there is a way of telling them apart, but you have to be kind of a specialist to know how to... There's something about the, the grain on the end of the the tusk of mammoth and mastodon is different than elephant. But, you know, your common everyday border agent's not going to necessarily know how to do that. So so then they kind of started lumping in mammoth ivory with elephant ivory to make it illegal, which is kind of a bummer. So I mean, at the end of the day, it's like, well, those animals are already long dead, so might as well use what was left of them. And then the latest I heard, and of course, the, you know, people keep, the law keeps changing every year or two. Yeah. And the latest I heard was that they have made exceptions for bow, bow parts and instrument parts and stuff like that. So you can get some kind of a, it's almost like an instrument passport. But then you can only cross at certain borders or fly into certain airports and stuff where whoever these people are, where they have an office or whatever, and and not every airport's going to have one of these specified custom agents or whatever who can do this. So, So that's limiting. So, yeah, it's unfortunate. I mean, I wish that it was at least, I mean, maybe, you know, raw materials, that's one thing, but at least if it's an already fashioned instrument, an already fashioned bow, like, it's almost like, just let it go, you know. (laughs) This is obviously, it's been around for a while. It's someone's personal possession, so. A lot of customers worry about it, but to be honest, I, at least, knock on wood, no pun intended, Mm -hmm. at this time, I've never had a customer actually have a problem at, at any kind of borders, but I guess it's always in the back of everyone's mind, and so the alternatives work fine. Um, environmentally, I don't know <laughs> how much improvement it is because, of course, I'm ended up with all this little, when I cut and work on that stuff, I got all this little dust and chips of plastic that I have to do something with. And so it's a little bit of a trade-off, I guess. But Yeah. And then we hear about Pernambuco becoming endangered. So then there's all the carbon fiber that's coming out for the modern bows. Yeah, it's a trade-off. I mean, it makes sense that all of that's happening, but at the same time, there's nothing like a real wood, nice, fine wood bow for me. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and it's, it's somewhat relative. I mean, I, I talked to the 
one of the guys I buy wood from in South America, and he's like, you know, the the wood that's getting bought by instrument makers and bow makers is such a teeny little drop in the. He says, drop in the bucket. He said they're they're planting some dam, and it's going to flood hectares of jungle, and all that wood's going to go to waste. It, it's just, wow. I mean, the scale is, you know, this one dam project would ruin more more lumber and wood than all the bow makers and woodworkers combined for, you know, 100 years. Or, or they're cutting it down for, you know, soybeans or... For grazing or, yeah, whatever. Slash and burn, that is way more of a, of a, of a problem, unfortunately, but... Yeah, and it's unfortunate that then we have to pay the price. <laughs> I mean, it's created a lot of innovation, you know, and you're having to be in- innovative with these new materials and stuff. But it must feel kind of strange to be making historical bows using this very new age material sometimes. And um, we just we roll with it, right? And and uh, you can still create the the designs and stuff. And thankfully, you're still able to use the wood that you want to use. It sounds like, but. We have to stay flexible, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, and I have, I have not gone into the carbon fiber. That just does not appeal to me at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know anything about it, and not not something I'm ever going to do. Yeah. So what tips do you have for players who are looking to purchase a historic bow? Is there maybe anything in particular they should be aware of or they should avoid? Well, I think the most important thing is to have someone, a teacher or a fellow Standmate or something, play it for them so they can hear it, and they play it so the other person can hear it. And you know, of course, a big part of it is how it feels and handles. But the sound is um, really good to have an objective ear listening to it, because you probably know too, as a violinist, you're you're hearing you know one inch from your ear. It's not the same as what it sounds like at the back of an auditorium or something like that. So. It's really good to try to line it up, you know, when you're going to have a lesson or when you're playing the venue um, that you're going to end up in, whether it's a church or a, an auditorium or something, and see how it really sounds in the in the right environment. Yeah, it can be a, a good confirmation sometimes, or sometimes it can be kind of a surprise, like underneath your ear, it sounds great. And then out in the room or vice versa, you know, under our ear, it sounds a bit harsh. And then out in the room, it sounds wonderful. So yeah, it's always good to have that third person perspective. You know, it's actually one of the reasons I started, you know, go to rehearsals and let them try it right where they're, you know, with the people that they're going to be playing with and they get to listen to each other and trade bows back and forth and hear what it sounds like in the, in the room and, that's a big that's a big plus. Yeah, it must be such a joy to see your bows being used in performance or rehearsal. It sounds like you're not getting to do that very often these days. No, I mean, now it's down to a couple times a year, maybe two, you know, three or four times a year I'll come down to the Bay Area or something. Or, um, we did go to Italy last year, and I got to see some of my customers over there and tootle around, and it's always fun to hear, because a lot of times, you know, I just send stuff in the UPS and I never get to meet them or hear what it sounds like and it's really fun to uh, hear these people play and hear what it sounds like in a in the context and meet interesting people. I mean, musicians are generally worldly and uh, well educated and interesting people to meet and it's been that's been really that's the fun part. 
And you've been talking about these different types of wood. If someone, say, came to you and they said, well, my violin's on the brighter side or it's on the darker side or I'm looking for such and such, are you going to mostly think about wood in terms of choosing what bows to send to them? Or are there other factors to design, I, I imagine, as well? Yes, there are other factors. But normally when it's tone, I go for certain woods. Um, if they're saying, well, I need something for a kind of composer or a certain, like, early dance music or something else, you know, some, so sometimes it's based on, you know, whether they're playing in an orchestra versus a, a trio versus solo versus recording, and then sometimes it's the tone, in which case, um, like I said, the blackwood tends to be good for an instrument that's a little too bright, and the snakewood and the ironwoods in particular are better for a, a, a instrument that needs a little bit more brightness. And then you have quite the list on your website of different questions when a client is looking to try some of your bows. So that's the first process, it sounds like. And I went through that process with you. Just tell us a little bit about how you work with clients who are wishing to purchase a bow and what the process is like for them. Right. Well, it's quite it's quite different with a bow. With a bow. And again, that's actually something I... I like is that I generally don't make custom bows or, you know, custom make a bow for somebody because it's just so hard to um, know exactly how it's going to work in the end. So I send samples and the online process is just trying to narrow down so I don't have to, we don't have to do so many shipments, Um, but I ship three bows at a time and I do base it on what they say or what kind of tone they're looking for sometimes what kind of instruments, sometimes they're playing on gut strings, sometimes they're playing on steel strings, sometimes they've got a totally modern instrument, but they, you know, I might, I might give me a different idea what model to send them. Um, so I'm just trying to narrow it down as much as I can, and then I send three different, well, it depends, sometimes it's three different woods, sometimes it's three different models out of the same wood. It kind of depends upon what they, how they answer the uh, online questionnaire. And sometimes it takes a few shipments, you know, to get it right. Yeah, I think with my process, there was the one that actually that I ended up purchasing was among the first three. And then I think I sent the other two back after trying them for, is it a week that you generally have people trying them out? Yeah, roughly it's a week. I, I have some flexibility there. It depends upon if I'm almost all out of a certain bow and I've got a whole bunch of orders, I might stick to that week. Um, if I don't have orders anyone else ordering that at the moment and you have a lesson or a concert coming up that it would really be nice to try for I can stretch that out a little bit but I try just so it doesn't get too crazy I try to stick to the week originally yeah keep track of where all your bows are (laughs) but then I think um yeah and then I kept that initial bow that I really liked from the batch and then you sent out a few more and I tried those and yeah I just kept coming back to that one they were all very interesting though I mean and kind of as an overall umbrella, you know, more similar to each other than similar to my modern bow, of course. But, but of course, differences were there, and I'm trying to remember exactly how it went with the second shipment, but I think I probably told you some things that I enjoyed about maybe the bow that I ended up eventually buying, and uh, I think maybe the second round was a little bit getting, you know, homing in on, on kind of a similar a similar feel, maybe. So how far afield do you send these bows? I mean, is it mostly within the U.S. or 
Is it worldwide? All over the world. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Although it's gotten, you know, I used to do hexing more international shipment, but unfortunately shipping has gotten so expensive that oh, I know. it's a little more daunting now to try to, you know, it's a couple hundred dollars each way. So it's, it's, uh, it's a little trickier trying to ship international, but I've certainly done a lot of international shipping. Um, and that's a little trickier because it has to go through customs and it's got, you know, it's a longer process. And, um, what's worked, what's worked a little better is why I try to encourage them. Well, if you know anybody that's coming to the U S I can ship it to them and they can hand carry it over and save a lot of money and not worry about customs so much. And so I try and then, and, or I like, that's one of the reasons I went to Europe this last summer is, um, cause ship, shipping to Europe has gotten so expensive that I've tried to get over there once in a while and bring some bows. Um, but yeah, it's, I mean, it's mostly in the U S yeah, just shipping like a CD to someone in like the UK. It's like 25 bucks for shipping. <laughs> it's like this tiny little envelope. I know, I just can't even imagine. Have you ever had like a bow just not come back, get lost in the mail or get stuck in customs or something? Or have you had pretty good luck with all of that? Pretty good luck, but yes. Good. Um, it's, it's funny that just last year, two bows got lost and they were only going to the Bay Area of all things. Oh no. Right around Christmas time and you know there's all these substitute drivers that don't know the normal route and don't know the and so they got mis, mislaid somewhere. Um, so yeah it happens. And um, they just never turned never, up? They just never turned up. Oh that's so depressing. Yeah. And you know I have insurance but of course you know how that works. You make a claim and then you're your yearly amount goes up. Yeah. So, but, you know, it certainly helped. I mean, it would, it wasn't catastrophic, but it was like, oh, no. It's not so much the money. It's just like, oh, no, those bows are just, who knows? You know, they're just gone. Yeah, and after all I your guess, hard work and... I if they show up in a violin shop, eventually someone pawns them or does something with them. I don't know, but... They're like, I think this is a violin bow. <laughs> I tend to not ship regular mail, even though it's, for the most part, fine, um... Their tracking is not very good, and especially I did one because it was less expensive, and the person was really freaking out about the price of shipping. And I I shipped it, United States Parcel Service, you know, even with a tracking number. And they said as soon as it got into Europe, they said, "Oh, we can't track it once it goes into Europe. It has to be tracked by you know European postal." And so that was one of those ones that got lost for a week or two. And oh man, we were all freaking out. But it ended up eventually coming out okay. But it was very nerve-wracking. Yeah. So, the, you know, FedEx and UPS have a little bit better tracking, and so that's usually what I do. And customs, you never know. It's true. I've had some things held up in customs for a while, and you just wonder, like, they must be really scrutinizing this stuff. Oh, no. What does this mean? <laughs> yeah. Well, you said you don't really do commissions or um, custom bows, but I did see on your website some work with universities, so it sounds like sometimes you are doing like a batch for a certain school or something. What's that process like, like working with, say, a music school to get some student bows sent out? Um, that's a good question. It's um, quite different depending upon the school. And I have done a lot of a lot of that over the years, which has been a godsend, really. A school like Juilliard, which didn't even have an early music department when I was starting, but they have quite a good one now. You know, I know that they had violin guy there, and he's got a couple of my bows, so he'll just say, uh, what classical bows do you have? 
okay, well, send us eight, you know. <laughs> okay, so they just buy what I have right off the shelf. Um, wow. I've had other schools that say, well, we need a student bow, you know, so I don't make student bows per se and have them on hand all the time. So I give them a better price because I'm making a batch and I'm making it as simple as I can and usable, but as basic as I can make them. And it depends upon the order, but not usually that big of an order. They might be five or six, two violins, a viola and a cello or something like that. And I'll, I'll make them. And that kind of goes, depends upon the school and how many they're ordering. And I give them a timeline and that's a different situation. I don't I haven't had that many calls for those actually in the last few years. They're kind of wanting better bows, I think. So they're they're willing to pay the price for for a more professional bow. And a lot of times, I'll get calls from a customer and they'll say, "Oh, I'm graduating from Indiana, and I was using one of your bows that the school had, but now I have to get my own bow." And blah blah blah. And so that's kind of cool to know that they went to school and they were using a bow of mine anyway, but now they have to get their own, and so they're kind of in the market for something. Yeah, they're graduating. Awesome. So when it comes time to get a rehair, can luthiers service historic bows or do we have to send them back to you? Or <laughs> I haven't actually gotten to that point in my uh, Baroque bow journey yet, So, but maybe soon. I'm, I'm curious. No, it's really, for the most part, not worth, because of shipping and loss and stuff, trying to ship them to me to get rehaired. Most of your comparable, you know, good violin shops nowadays, they've seen enough of these, they, they know how to hear them, and there's really not that much to them that's different. I'll say that in general, when I see bows haired by violin shops, my opinion is they tend to use a little bit too much hair, but that's not the worst thing in the world. It's not going to ruin your bow or anything. It's just personally, my opinion on that is that they tend to use a little bit too much hair, but it's something they can usually handle without a problem with the exception of um, clip-in bows which are the really early broke bows before they were using screws and so there's no adjustment on those and those are really hard to rehair and I don't even like doing it so hmm. I usually encourage people to buy an early bow if they're going to buy a bow of that style just to go ahead and get one with a screw but there's a, there are some diehards that really want just the really simple clip-in frog which means that the, the hair itself is attached to the stick on both ends okay. and the frog is completely separate and you have to kind of bend the stick and clip the frog in and there's only one set tension so there's no adjusting the, of the tension except you can kind of fold a little piece of paper and slide it between the hair and the stick and things like that to get a little bit more tension but they're very hard to deal with um, they're temperamental and Unless you're a real specialist and they're insistent, I, I kind of steer people away from those, to be honest. Yeah, so I'm, I'm envisioning this. Maybe I can find a, a picture and put it in the show notes. But I'm envisioning kind of like a real bow. like, And then this frog is almost like the arrow that you're putting between the hair and the stick. Is that right? Uh, kind of sort it of. In there? Yeah, it's, it's, there's a... You have to cut and... Uh, take some of the stick off to fit the frog in there so it's got a little notch, you know, got that the frog okay. fits. So it's a custom little notch for that frog. And it's really hard to hair those. <laughs> Even for me, it's like, oh, every time I have to do this, it's like, oh, my God, I have to try figure out how to get the hair on them. It's really hard to get the hair on them. And then once that 
frog is clipped in, that's a set tension. There's no adjusting it, except for maybe, like I said, you can fold little things and put it between the hair and the and the frog, and you can get a little bit more tension. But if it's too tight, nothing you can do except get it rehaired, and nobody wants to do them. So unless you are in a big city and you've already got a broke bow and you really are set on a clip-in bow and you and have a luthier available that knows how to do those, I would I kind of discourage people from doing it. And even even people that specialize in that kind of stuff tend to get the ones with the screw because, you know, they're traveling different humidities and stuff. It's really hard to get the right adjustment on the hair. Yeah, just with my modern bows, I've had a few instances over the years where I've had a rehair and the humidity and temperature and whatever it was at the time of the rehair was maybe a little bit unusual. Maybe it was like a little bit more humid or a little bit more dry or whatever. I was in one situation I was traveling and the hair sort of settles into its length and in the bow returns to more normal conditions. Then it's like the bow's too tight. I can't loosen it all the way or vice versa. It's too loose and I really have to tighten it, you know? So I guess I'm wondering with the Baroque bows, what do you recommend people maybe tell their luthiers or look for with just making sure that we're able to kind of get back to this curvature that we're hoping for? It's basically the same thing as a modern bow. Okay. You still have the same, pretty much the same amount of adjustment of tightening the screw. But what you're talking about is exactly right. I have almost a night, nightmares here because I where it's very, usually this winter exception very dry here and it's in the summertime sometimes it's 12 15 percent humidity and i i make 30 35 bows and i go down to the boss uh, the berkeley uh, early music festival to do a, a little festival down there and then august or something and it's foggy <laughs> and the bows are as tight as can be here i go down there and they're just saggy you know it's like oh my god i gotta tighten them up almost half the way just to get them just to be normal, to, to you know, like loose. normal, yeah. <laughs> and it's like, oh, it's a nightmare. It's, that's only a two hours drive away. And it's 80% humidity down there, and it's 12 here. So this yeah. is, it's, it's better, I guess, going that way than the other way. If you, you know, if I had my hair, bow hair down in the Bay Area in the, in the fog, and then come up here at 12%, you, know, you can break, a, you can break your bow doing that. Yeah. I've had, I've actually had a bow just break because, it was I haired it when it was really humid and it got so dry here it just it got too tight and it just snapped the head right off. So Wow. Yeah. So I guess my suggestion is to do it of course if you're traveling all the time there's not much you can do about it, but if you're I kind I kind of encourage people to do someone local that's got, you know, pretty much the same humidities that you have because it's hard for me here where it's fairly dry. I tend to they put the hair in kind of on the short side here because almost everywhere else I send it, it's going to be more humid. That makes sense. Unless yeah. you're in Arizona or something like that. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Is there anything that people should be aware of for just like their bow health that's any different than using a modern bow and caring for a modern bow? Nope, just, you know, take the tension off when you're not using it and uh, wipe the rosin off once in a while. It does kind of build up on there. Mm-hmm. But that's more of a visual thing. It's not really going to hurt anything per se, but just to keep it clean. Um, the edges of the frog on the Baroque bar are really the only actual fragile thing. So you, you do kind of want to store it where the the frog's not getting banged around. Um, but most you know most players are pretty 
careful with their stuff anyway. So I don't, you know, there's nothing particularly different on a Baroque bow, except like I said, the edges of the frogs are a little, a little fragile. And that's just because, although with modern bows, it's generally ebony, with these bows, it's more wood or the, the ivory we're talking about or just different materials. Well, no, it's because, um, I mean, they're both wood. In fact, the, mm-hmm. the, the woods for Baroque bows and the frogs are actually harder and heavier than the ebony. It's mm-hmm. the, the modern bows have the silver ferrule, um, so that, you know, that's taking the beating. If it's, if it's getting, you know, set on a desk or drops off the music stand or something, it's hitting, generally it's hitting silver rather than, um, and the slide and the and the edges of the ebony are usually a little wider where the slide's going in. Um, and on Baroque bows, some of those little edges there, they're they're just open and they're yeah. pretty narrow. So if you you know you do have to be a little more cautious, maybe of you know dropping the bow or setting it down real hard, you can kind of clank that little edge. Um, that's usually about the only damage I end up seeing on bows is someone's dropped it or you know, smacked it a little bit too hard and that little edge kind of breaks off. Got it. Okay. Um, that makes sense. Other than that, they're, they're pretty sturdy, actually. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for chatting with us. Is there anything else you'd like to add or that people should be aware of? No, just don't be afraid to try stuff. I mean, realize it's going to be really different if you've never played a Baroque bow. Kind of, you have, like you did, you have to kind of have an open mind and just... Um, find out what works on it and don't be afraid to maybe have to change your technique a little bit but i think it works great for you know irish tunes and early music and i've never not to i haven't had anyone much try it for jazz but i don't see why not especially if they're electrified you don't necessarily need all the power that an acoustic instrument needs um and they're fun i think definitely fun (laughs) I'd love to try all the bows you have. Maybe sometime I'll come up there. And <laughs> it might drive you crazy if you tried them all. Yeah, probably. Well, actually, I tried all the violins at the, the maker's shop where I, I got mine. Um, one time I was passing through. It was like probably 100 violins. <laughs> wow. It was definitely quite the afternoon. But, uh, you know, I came back to mine. So there's something to be said for just our taste, you know, and what resonates with us. and. Yeah. And what's the best way that people should get in touch with you if they're interested in learning more about what you're doing and possibly trying out some bows? Um, Going through my website. Uh, I got my email on there. I check my email quite a bit. Phone, a little iffier because if I'm running a machine or a lot of times when I'm in the shop, I don't answer the phone because you get so many junk calls. And by the time I take my head earphones off and my mask off and turn the machine off and then answer the phone ends up being someone trying to sell me something and emails is really the best way awesome and we'll have those links in the show notes so people can just click over there so yeah thank you so much and i will continue to enjoy this bow and continue to make awesome bows i think it's wonderful you were really kind of one of the only or and certainly amongst the first people to pop up i think i just did kind of a google search and went to your site and really liked what I saw and the vibes. So there we go. <laughs> Thank you. There's not too many of us left doing this kind of stuff. Yeah, it's quite specialized. And I guess with that, I mean, do you ever have people that come and do like a little internship or apprenticeship with you? Or have you thought of doing something like that? 
crossed my mind, but it's never happened, you know? Yeah. I don't know if there's just not a... It's interesting because there are a lot of young students, music-wise, but not, not so much instrument-making and bow-making. So I don't know what's going to happen. It seems like when I've been back on the East Coast, it seems like maybe just because all the towns are kind of more smushed together, but maybe there's more of that going on. I'm not sure. Um, maybe, but most of the, you know, I go to the trade shows and it's the same people I've seen for 35 years in terms of the makers, you know. Oh, interesting. Um, not, not normally a whole lot of young new makers. There's probably more money in computers and stuff like that, you know. Well, that's probably true, although seems like maybe maybe they're going down now too so <laughs> they've uh, created this AI that's going to take their jobs as well it's a changing world out there but yeah it is wonderful that there's at least a few of you still out there doing this and hopefully some people will get the idea and be inspired to do the same and carry on the tradition yeah I mean if there was someone that was um, inspired enough and really wanted to do it I mean there, there could be some potential there the only thing is, of course, I have my shops at home, so it's a little more personal than, you know, a shop off-site. And it's a fairly small shop, so I'd have to do quite a bit of rearranging. And I'm probably set in my ways and kind of a, a wild man when I'm in there in the shop. So <laughs> All this wrestling you're doing with the wood. <laughs> yeah, well, wonderful. We'll keep on keeping on. I really appreciate you taking the time. Well, thanks for calling, and... Uh, Maybe we'll get to meet and I'll get to hear you play one of these days. That sounds like a plan. All right. Awesome, Ralph. Well, you have a great day out there. All right. Take care of yourself. Okay. You too. Thanks again to Ralph Ashmead for sharing his time, knowledge, and experience with us. I hope you'll go and check out his website. It's ashmeadbows.com. That's spelled A-S-H-M-E-A-D. B-O-W-S, ashmeadbows.com. It's really interesting to look at all the photos he has over there of the different models and experiments that he's done, the different woods. And if you're inspired to see if one of his bows might be something you're interested in picking up for yourself, I can say from personal experience that he is a very easy and helpful person to work with. It's always interesting and insightful to get a glimpse sort of behind the curtain, so to speak, of these tools that we use every day to express ourselves and make music. It just helps me appreciate how much, yes, we need to create the music and practice and everything that we're doing to present the sound that we want and the performance that we want, but how much the tools that we're using are also very important. And I would say a third piece of that would be the material that we're presenting. So while a lot of the times we can feel like it's all on our shoulders, we have to respect that there is this marriage of performer, composer, and luthier every time we step onto the stage or into our practice room. And there's a real art and craft in all three of those roles, not to be underestimated. I think particularly with bows, until we get to a certain level of experience and ability, we often don't realize how much of a role the bow plays. I know as a beginner, I thought about the violin. I'm getting a new violin. Yay. (laughs) And then it's like, oh, you should budget a little bit for the bow. Okay, whatever. You know, but then along the way, I started realizing how much the bow is a crucial part of the equation. I remember one student, one of my younger students a couple years ago, I think he was 
maybe eight or nine. And he was graduating up to, I think it was a three quarter size violin at that point. And I sent him off to the music shop and he was going to come back with a few different instruments. And he actually came back with just one violin that he really liked, but he was so proud to inform me in the lesson that he liked it only with one of the bows they sent him home with. (laughs) And it was really cute. And I said, okay, well, let's hear this. And sure enough, this one bow made the instrument sound great. And these other, I think there were two other bows maybe that they sent him home with. One in particular sounded terrible, just really kind of grainy and scratchy and nasally. And then the other one wasn't that bad, but it wasn't that much better either. And it was just so amazing to see his face sort of light up when I recognized what he had heard as being my experience as well. And we're both going, yeah, something about that bow and that violin, they're a match. It just took him to this new level of understanding and confidence in the music that he was making and being able to have that empowerment that he was starting to hear the sound that he wanted and he was starting to be able to make those decisions for himself. That was just really special to witness that in that moment. And there are plenty of other instances uh, like that, you know, that I've experienced and I've experienced with students where, yeah, we just have this realization that for whatever reason, we need to find this perfect match. And maybe that's an instrument and a bow, like in this experience, or maybe it's an instrument with a certain type of string, or maybe it's a, something more subtle, like a certain type of rosin, or in this case, talking to Ralph today. I really found such a difference with the Baroque music suddenly just playing on one of these Baroque style bows that it's like, I just, I don't think I could go back to playing with a modern bow, this type of music. I mean, I could, if I had to, if I didn't have the Baroque bow with me or something, then I certainly could play with a modern bow, but given a choice, the Baroque bow just makes so much more sense. And is so much more ready to produce the type of sound and particularly the type of phrasing that I'm after with this type of music that somehow I was always after, but there was a struggle there with the modern bow that maybe I couldn't even articulate. I do recall teachers telling me to be more light and you know, (laughs) this sort of thing with the music and trying and trying, but it just became so clear to me just getting one of these bows in my hands that, okay, that's what we're after. That's what we were after all along. And of course, that's how Bach and Handel and all of these composers from that era would have heard that music. And that's what they're going to be writing to. So again, there's that trio combination of the performer, the composer, and the luthier all working together. And like I said, we probably need a certain level of experience to appreciate that. But it's just so wonderful to see people like Ralph out there experimenting with their craft and producing unique and amazing tools that we can enjoy. And all the bows that he's had sent me, they all had a slightly different quality and just in a world where so much of everything we use every day is mass produced it's really special that 
you know, as artists, hopefully we're discovering our own voice and we're playing on these instruments that have their own voice. There's not another one exactly like it, unless I guess we go with carbon fiber or something like that. And then, you know, we're playing music that is totally up for some personal interpretation. I mean, I know that there is historical interpretation that we also need to be aware of and balance with, but it's just really beautiful. And I just wanted to leave everyone here with that appreciation that I was having, at least in my own life, and uh, pursuing this music as a career. It's just, uh, yeah, it's very, just very rewarding to recognize that it is a team effort as much as we can feel like it's all on our own shoulders and that pressure, right? So anyhow, I hope you have enjoyed this episode. And I'll be having some other fun interviews and topics coming out soon. So please stay tuned and subscribe if you're not already a subscriber to the Violin Geek podcast. You can also check out my Violin Geek blog. It's over at my website, laurelthompson.com. That's L-A-U-R-E-L-T-H-O-M-S-E-N. And all of these links, of course, will be in the show notes, which you should be able to find wherever you listen, just by clicking on the description and scrolling down. Let's see, since the last episode, there was one blog post that might be interesting to those out there. It was inspired by an experience that I had in nature recently. And it got me thinking along the lines of appreciating (laughs) the small changes that we might experience in our lives or in our practice or in our bodies these sorts of things. So as far as the blog, sometimes I am sort of doing what I'm doing at the end of this episode here and uh, running with a theme or an insight that I've had. And then a lot of times on the blog, I might be answering a listener or a reader question and getting into the nitty gritties of technique or interpretation or practice, different tips and and how-tos and stuff like that. So if you've enjoyed the podcast, you'll probably enjoy heading over there and checking that out. And since the last podcast episode, I've also had an article come out in Strings Magazine. It was an interesting topic to research. Basically, it's a review of some violin and strings sample libraries, which was something that I haven't really experienced at least on the user side, I have experienced that as a studio artist where a composer comes to me and they've already worked out some string parts basically with their keyboard playing the string parts and some samples are much better than others. Some I've been quite impressed with almost to the point where I go, do you really need me? (laughs) This sounds pretty good. But of course, there's certain nuances that only... A real live human could probably produce. Of course, AI is out there now too, so who knows where it's all going. But it was really interesting to just look into what is out there and and hear all of the different possibilities. And certainly for someone who doesn't have easy access to string players and they just want to get their thoughts down, or they want to flesh out more of like an orchestral sound, 
and it would be very hard and expensive for the average person to get an orchestra together until, of course, they get to a certain level of compositional notoriety. It could be a very, very helpful tool. So anyhow, that article is in the latest edition of Strings Magazine. If you have comments, questions, or suggestions, including topics or people that you'd like me to cover, then please send me an email. My email is laurel at laurelthompson.com. That will also be in the show notes. And head over to my website if you're interested in learning more about me, my recordings, my performances, my teaching, and my courses. I'm always happy to hear from my listeners. So until next time, I hope you're having a great summer and happy practicing.